Well, we are going to be looking at what is perhaps the greatest prophecy in all of Scripture, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. And so if you would, please turn with me there to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. This is a remarkable prophecy in many ways. For one, it provides one of the greatest defenses for the divine authorship of Scripture. In fact, Isaac Newton once said, quote, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone, made five centuries before Christ, end quote. This prophecy also provides important keys to understanding world history, or I should say, world future. So many people are trying to predict where the world is heading, but for those who take their Bible at face value, it is clear there is a consistent and unified picture of the major events that have yet to take place. This prophecy also serves as an apologetic for the Jewish people today. It says plainly that their Messiah would be cut off. He would die before the destruction of their renewed temple. And so Messiah must have died before A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. And lastly, I would say this prophecy settles the issue when it comes to the question, is God finished with the nation of Israel? Did Israel's sin disqualify them from God's unconditional covenant blessings? And so has the church replaced Israel? And this text says, no, no, and no. Israel's sin is no barrier to God fulfilling his promise to save and bless them forever. There is a future for Israel. Yes, the church is grafted in and the dividing walls are torn down, but the expansion of God's promises to the church does not mean that he canceled his previous promises to the nation of Israel. And so even though Israel has indeed broken the Mosaic covenant, God will not fail to keep the covenants he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with David, and with the nation of Israel. And Daniel knows that God will be faithful to all his promises. And that confidence in God spurs him on to pray with such passion that we saw last week. He takes hold of God's promise to restore Israel to the land after 70 years. And then he prays, Lord, do as you have said for your glory. And that's where we ended last time. So let's pick it up now in verse 20. We are going to see a gracious response, a gracious response to Daniel's prayer. Verse 20, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, and while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, touched me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening sacrifice. Then he made me understand and spoke with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the word was issued, so I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So understand the message and gain understanding in what has appeared. So this is really an incredible scene Here's Daniel. Remember, he's over 80 years old at this point. He's no doubt feeling the, the physical weakness of his own body. And add to that the fact that he hasn't eaten anything for who knows how long. He's been fasting in preparation for this prayer. And he's wearing sackcloth. He's wearing rough rags. And he's covered in ashes. 
And so from the world's point of view, this man is the epitome of weakness, and yet he is highly esteemed in God's sight. Daniel said that he was confessing his own sins and the sins of the people. And it's to this old, ashy, wearied, sinful man that God sends this majestic angel, the very angel before whom he fell on his face in a vision in chapter 8. He sends this angel to respond personally to Daniel's prayer. And I don't know about you, but if an angel were to show up while I was praying, I might notice something like that. It's not like Daniel is blasting instrumental music on his speakers. But Daniel has completely forgotten himself, and he's lost in this prayer with the Lord, passionately pleading for God's glory, and so much so that the angel Gabriel needs to touch him, to interrupt his prayer and say, it's answered. It was answered at the very beginning. It just took me some time to get here. God has an answer for your prayer, and he sent me to tell you in person. Why? Because he told me that you're highly esteemed in his sight. What a gracious response to the prayer of this man. I love what one commentator wrote. This is the Lord speaking. Go, Gabriel, fly with all possible expedition. Do not so much as look back to behold my glory. I like that. Mind nothing but your errand. Tell him, in answer to what he is saying, to me belongeth shame of face. O Daniel, thou art greatly beloved. In answer to his request that I would defer not, tell him that at the very beginning of his supplications, the commandment was given thee to go and answer them from me. Now, I want to make some more observations about this text that you might have already noticed. First of all, if you're looking at the ESV, instead of saying, in my extreme weariness, it says, in swift flight, and you say, wow, that's a big difference in translation, and yes, it is. And the reason is, is that the word in the Hebrew could mean flight, but it's traditionally used to mean fatigue. And I'm inclined toward the latter, really, because of the sentence structure in the Hebrew. Second, it says, the man, Gabriel. Well, he's called a man because in chapter 8, he appeared in human form in a vision. And so Daniel is just saying that it's the same angel. Third, Daniel notes that he was praying at the time of the evening sacrifice, and that is a rich piece of information. Three o'clock in the afternoon was exactly the time when the lambs would be slaughtered for the forgiveness of sins. And even though there hasn't been any evening sacrifice for more than half a century, Daniel is praying for forgiveness and restoration for God's people at the very hour when God has established a time for acceptable sacrifice and for the forgiveness of sins. And lastly, notice the word understand is used four times in verses 22 to 23. And so this is an urgent word, and Daniel is to do his best to understand it, and so are we. And so to Daniel, the word was issued. God has made known to Daniel and to us what has been to this point stored up in the secret knowledge of God, and now this incredible prophecy has been revealed. So let's look at it together. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. In other words, 70 weeks for what is truly a glorious restoration. 
dive in. Seventy weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, the word weeks can actually be translated as sevens, seventy sevens. And in the Jewish mind, it could be a unit of seven days or a unit of seven years. And so 70 times seven years is 490 years. And as we'll see, the context makes clear that Daniel is indeed referring to years. And so these 490 years have been determined, they've been decreed for your people and your holy city. That's the nation of Israel. This is a promise for Israel alone. Notice you don't see the church anywhere in this chapter or in the entire Old Testament for that matter, and we'll get to that later on. But let's dive into these truly incredible features of Israel's future restoration, and I'll show you my hand before we unpack these. I believe that all of these will be fulfilled at the end of the 70th week, and you say, wow, that's, that's great insight. Well, you'd be surprised how many people don't see that. Let me be more specific. I believe that these will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And just as a reminder, here we go, we are somewhere here in the church age. We could be right here or here. doesn't matter. We are in this church age. Here's where the rapture is, right before the tribulation. This is the 70th week. And then this is where the Lord comes, his second coming, right before the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation, and then on into the eternal state, right there. So that's a reminder for you. And you say, wait a minute, you said 490 years. It's been well over 2,000 years, and we'll get to that. It'll all make sense. Let's look at these features of Israel's future restoration. There are six total. Number one, to finish the transgression, to finish the transgression. The Lord is saying, there is coming a day when I will finish Israel's transgression. It says, the transgression. What has been Israel's long-standing transgression? I believe it's their rebellion against Yahweh. And so the Lord is saying that after 70 weeks of years, Israel will no longer rebel against him. They won't be unfaithful to him or turn again to other gods or idols. They will turn their face to the Lord and they won't ever turn their, their backs again. And can I support that interpretation? I believe I can with scripture. Jeremiah 32, the Lord says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Hosea 14, the Lord says, I will heal their turning away from me. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And then lastly, Jeremiah 24. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. This is the kind of restoration Daniel sought in his prayer, not just a return to the land of Israel just to break the covenant all over again, but to heal Israel's sin problem, their heart problem, their turning away from the true God and walking after the lusts of their own heart. You say, God can do that? God can so change our hearts that we won't ever fall away from the faith? Yes, God can do that, and he has done that for many in this room, for those of you who are in Christ. 
No true believer will be lost because God's grace keeps them in the faith. We persevere in faith because and only because God preserves us. And so he will finish. He will put an end to Israel's rebellion against him, their unbelief. But God won't just put an end to Israel's rebellion. He goes on, number two, to make an end of sin. To make an end of sin. And now it seems to me that we can take these words at face value. And I believe this feature goes along with number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. One is the negative, ending Israel's sin once and for all, and the other is the positive, bringing in their everlasting righteousness. So let's handle both at the same time, and I want you to see it for yourself. There's so many passages we could point to, but we only have so much time. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses tells Israel that after they receive all the curses of the law and are exiled for disobedience, the Lord will bring them back to the land and, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Now, have you ever loved the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? I honestly don't think I have. I'm like Paul in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And so I believe that Israel's righteousness will be of a much greater caliber in the kingdom than what the church is currently experiencing in this age. And here's some support for that. Isaiah 60, your people, this is the people of Israel, shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I would be glorified. Isaiah 62, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. Now, some of you may be wondering how these things can be true of an unglorified people. Well, first of all, it's helpful to know that the effects of the fall will be greatly diminished in the kingdom of God. For example, Isaiah chapter 2 tells us that righteousness and peace will reign in the kingdom, and not just in Israel or in Jerusalem, but among all the nations. In Isaiah 11, we see the wolf dwelling with the lamb and a child playing with a cobra. In Isaiah 32, we see that the earth and the millennial kingdom will yield its fruit in abundance. Men won't be toiling by the sweat of their brow. And in Isaiah 65, we see that death will be greatly diminished as people live much longer. And so in the kingdom, with all these changes and much more, and with Satan bound in Christ reigning, it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that all Israel will walk in holiness as much as unglorified humans can be holy. And so there is the promise of special supernatural blessing on Israel regarding sin and righteousness, more than the Gentile nations around them, and yet not more than the church. We'll have our resurrected and glorified bodies by then. But scripture seems to indicate that God will supernaturally subdue Israel's sin and produce consistent righteousness in them and I believe in their children as well. And yes, God can do that too. 
Let's go on to number three. To make atonement for iniquity. No one doubts that this is a reference to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And though he accomplished the work of atonement 2,000 years ago, the benefits of that atonement are applied to Israel at the end of the 70th week. And when that happens, they will all be saved. When Christ comes again on that day, according to Zechariah 12.10, God will pour out upon Israel the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on their Messiah whom they have pierced. And the benefits of Christ's atoning work on the cross will be applied to them. Zechariah 13 it says, In that day, the day they look upon their Messiah, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. On that day, the Lord will open the fountain of his limitless cleansing grace upon all Israel, and he'll never close it again. It won't ever be said of anyone in Israel sinful or rebellious or unfaithful or unforgiven. Romans 11, Paul says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer, that's Christ, will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Micah 7, You will subdue our iniquities, and you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. In the kingdom of Christ, all Israel will be forgiven. All Israel will be saved. All Israel will know the Lord and love him with all their hearts. That is the promise of the new covenant. That is what it says. You say, can God do that? Can he save a whole nation? Yes, God can do whatever he wants. He can save whoever he wants. He's not limited by man's fallen will. And understand that God is not trying to save everyone who has ever lived. That's not what he's doing. And listen, God's sovereignty does not negate your responsibility to obey him. Yes, God sovereignly elects, but you are responsible. You are commanded to come to Christ It's not your job to figure out if you're elect before you come to Christ. Your job is to repent and believe and follow him and leave the secret things to God. I've heard too many people say, well, if I'm not elect, I don't want to give up my sin. I'll repent and believe once I know I'm elect. And friends, that is all wrong and wicked. But know that if you have truly repented and believed in Christ, you are elect and can have the full assurance that Christ's accomplishments are yours and that you have eternal life. Number five, since we did three and four together, to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, the expression to seal up indicates that no more is to be added. Once a letter is sealed, it is sealed, and you can't change or add to what has been written. And so all visions and prophecies will come to an end. I'm not saying they're fulfilled. They're just no longer necessary. Some commentators say that this is referring to the close of the New Testament, but I disagree. According to Joel chapter 2, more prophecies and visions will will occur before the end of the tribulation. But once Christ comes, once the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. We will know fully just as we have been fully known. 
There will be no more need for prophecy once Christ has come. There'll be no more need for someone to reveal what God has said when God is already with us. And lastly, number six, the holy of holies, to anoint the holy of holies. There will be a rebuilt temple in the millennial kingdom. We see that in Ezekiel 40 to 48. I believe this temple will be built and consecrated for service to the Lord Jesus Christ at the onset of the kingdom, and all Israel will worship the Lord as they were always meant to, in full obedience, in holiness, drawing all the nations to worship the Lord. So those are the six features of this prophecy. And what an amazing prophecy this is. The Lord has said that he will deal with Israel's sin problem once and for all, and he will do far more than that. And so, what joy, what blessing awaits those who will walk in this kingdom with Christ, their Savior and their King. But Gabriel is not done. Yes, there's a glorious restoration But what must Israel go through to get there? That brings us to our third point, a grievous road. A grievous road. Verse 25. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So he says, from the going out of a word to rebuild Jerusalem. Whenever that is, that's when the clock starts. And so when did that happen? In Nehemiah chapter 2, King Artaxerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, gives the decree for Nehemiah to go and rebuild Jerusalem the city of Jerusalem, and the year was 445 B.C. That's the starting point, I believe. Okay, so seven sevens plus 62 sevens gives us 483 years. Subtract 483 from 445 B.C., and you get an arrival date of the Messiah at A.D. 38, which is off, and rightly so, because we didn't use the right calendar. But if you count the years as the Jews counted them, with 360 days per year and take into account their leap years, you arrive at the very year that Jesus, Messiah the Prince, entered Jerusalem to begin the Passover week, and that would be around A.D. 30. Now, that's a lot of math, and you could do it on your own time if you want, but just know that this wasn't just a good guess or that God was just close enough. No, it was exact to the very day, and that's why it was so important for Daniel and for Israel to understand this. When the Messiah finally came right on schedule, were they waiting for him? Were they ready? In Luke 19, when Jesus entered Jerusalem and saw the city, he cried out against it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace which, have been, which would have been to believe in him. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He's saying you should have known. You should have been waiting for your Messiah. And though Israel as a nation wasn't ready for their Messiah, there were at least two who we know were waiting. Anna 
in Luke chapter 2 was, quote, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And Simeon was, quote, waiting for the comfort of Israel. There was two that were waiting. God will be true to his word. He writes the history, and so you can trust your Bibles. So the temple will be rebuilt with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And I believe that this refers to the struggles that were involved in rebuilding the temple during Nehemiah's ministry. So seven sevens, or 49 years, from the decree of Artaxerxes would bring us to the rebuilding of the second temple and to the close of the Old Testament canon, around 400 BC, followed by the 400 silent years, and then after nearly 430 years, Messiah the Prince would come. And how sweet that sound must have been to Daniel's ears. But then he hears this. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And Daniel might be thinking, wait a minute. In all the visions so far, there was nothing about the stone which would crush all other kingdoms being cut off. And there was nothing about the Son of Man to whom will be given an everlasting dominion being cut off. And to be cut off in the Hebrew mind speaks of the death penalty for a criminal. And so Messiah would not just die, he would die as a guilty criminal. And so if you're reading Daniel, you would think that with the coming of the Messiah would be the establishment of his kingdom and he would rule over all when he comes, but God has a different plan. There would be the cross before the crown. And it doesn't take a trained scholar to exegete this text. The Jewish people should have known that their Messiah would die and die as a criminal. Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? This wasn't an intellectual issue. It was a heart issue. They should have believed in what God has said in his word, but it was foolishness to them. And the preaching of the cross is to this day a stumbling block and foolishness to many. Now it says that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Though they expected him to receive an everlasting kingdom, he would have nothing. The kingdoms of this world still belong to Satan. This is not the kingdom of Christ that we're living in. What should belong to Christ is not yet realized. Honor and glory and love and praise from all the nations of the world. But he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was made in the world, he was in the world made by him, and the world knew him not. And by all appearances, it seems as though darkness had won the day. And notice, there is no word of resurrection in this passage. But look at Isaiah 53. As for his generation, the generation of Christ, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. But look at this, it says, he shall see his offspring. He'll rise again. He shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see 
and be satisfied. The resurrection, though not stated, is clearly implied in this text. How else will he see and be satisfied with the results of his sacrifice for sinners? And though it's not stated in Daniel, the context is clear. Though Messiah would be cut off, though he would die a criminal's death, chapter 7 is clear. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The resurrection is assumed. God's word cannot fail. Yes, he will die. And also, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And he will reign forever. But until then, desolations are decreed Verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. So another prince is mentioned here. This is not Messiah the prince, but the people of the prince who is to come. Whoever this guy is, he will come from the people that destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Well, which people destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. Romans, good class, thank you. The Romans. And Daniel already told us in chapter 7 that the Antichrist will come from the fourth beast, which we know is the Roman Empire. And in Revelation 17, we find that he's associated in some way with the city of seven hills, which is Rome. And so the Antichrist will arise in, in some way from a revived Roman Empire. So, Rome destroyed the city and the temple in 70 AD. And guess what? All the records were destroyed. And so the Jews alive today have no way of knowing which tribe they're from. If the Messiah is to come from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, if someone were to come along, someone else were to come along and say, I'm the Messiah, they would have no way of proving that. Jesus must be the Messiah There is no other option. There is no other. The Messiah came in AD 30, and then the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Now it says, its end, the end of the city and the sanctuary, will come with a flood. That's a common way in Scripture to emphasize the magnitude of the devastation, which is an apt description of how it actually played out. I won't go into detail now for the sake of time, but just imagine Daniel hearing this. Even though Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt, even though his prayer would be answered in part, the city and the sanctuary would eventually be destroyed all over again. And it says, even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. And I take that to mean that even to the end of these 70 weeks, there will be war against Israel. And that's certainly been true throughout Israel's history, as we know. Verse 27, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will make sacrifice and grain offering cease. So we have seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69. And here is the final week of years, the seven-year tribulation period The book of Revelation also tells us that the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel, but it doesn't say why they made a covenant. We can only guess. But Israel at this point has rebuilt the temple and reinstituted the sacrificial system. And this covenant between Israel and the Antichrist kicks off the tribulation period. 
But at the three-and-a-half-year point, in the middle of the seven years, the Antichrist will set himself up as the object of their worship. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, that he will take his seat in the temple of God and claim to be God. And from there, the Antichrist will go on to terrorize the earth, and he deceives the unbelieving world into worshiping him. And as Daniel 7.25 says, this authority is given to him by God for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. One plus two plus a half. This period is repeated over and over again in Scripture. It says in Revelation 11.2 that after Antichrist sets himself up, the nations will trample underfoot the city of Jerusalem for 42 months. 42 months, again, three and a half years. And it says in Revelation 13 that the Jews will flee in the wilderness while the city and the sanctuary are again destroyed and they will be protected by God for 1,260 days, which is again three and a half years. The Bible is explicit about this. This is exactly how it will happen. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the Antichrist, setting himself in the, in the temple, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet right here, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, there's our word again, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, but pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Jesus knows that the Jewish religious system and the Mosaic law will be operating again for these Jews. Remember, the, the church will be raptured by this time. He says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as, as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. This is the great tribulation period. And so all hell will break loose on earth, but all heaven will break loose as well, as God's wrath will be poured out on the wicked. And then finally, a resurrected and glorified Christ comes and destroys the Antichrist and ultimately casts him into the lake of fire. We see that in the book of Revelation. So that's what's going to happen. And on the wing of abominations, in other words, as a result of what the Antichrist will do in the temple, will come one who makes desolate. That's when he turns the tables on the Jews even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's the Antichrist. He will be completely destroyed, and Daniel is silent on who destroys the Antichrist, but we know that it is Christ, the resurrected and glorified King. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that the church is nowhere mentioned in this prophecy, nor is she mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. The prophets never saw a, a distinction. They never saw between uh, his first and second coming, between the gaps, which is why in the Old Testament you can have a prophecy of his first and second coming in the same breath. I'll give you an example. Isaiah 9, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Do you guys see the gap in there? He's already been born. But the government is not yet on his shoulders. That awaits to be fulfilled in his second coming. Only Jesus was aware of this gap. In Luke 4, he reads a prophecy of Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, etc., etc. 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops right there, in the middle of the sentence. But what comes next? And the day of vengeance of our God. Friends, that's the tribulation. That's the 70th week. And the passage goes on to describe the conditions of the kingdom of Christ to follow. Now, with all that said, there is clearly a gap in this prophecy in Daniel 9, and you can even see it. I tried to help you out a little bit there. It says, after the 62 weeks, all these things will happen, and then the Antichrist will make a covenant for one week. You guys see the gap there? So what's, what's in the gap? It's the church age. I don't know if you guys can see that. This is the gap. Seven weeks of years, 49 years, 62 weeks, here's the gap, and here's the last week. So they didn't see anything in this prophetic gap right here. That awaits to be fulfilled. Paul calls this a mystery now revealed in the last days. And, and though we, we knew when Jesus would come the first time, we don't know when Jesus is coming back because of this gap. He said, it's not for you to know. He said, he will come like a thief in the night. We are living in the mystery not revealed to any prophet in the Old Testament. The church age will end when the Lord snatches up his church in the rapture after the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, as Paul says in Romans 11, when every member of the elect body of Christ, the church, is saved. The church is promised that she will not go through the tribulation period. She will be, quote, rescued from the wrath to come, end quote, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. That is the purpose of the rapture. Now get this, if the church weren't raptured before the tribulation, then we would know exactly the hour when Christ would come back. What do I mean? We would just wait for the Antichrist to set himself up in the temple as God and then count three and a half years. So his return would not be like a thief in the night. We would be there with welcome home signs waiting for Christ. No, the church is kept from the tribulation. Remember, this 70th week is for Israel. It's not for the church. In Acts 1, chapter six, Acts 1, verse 6, the apostles ask Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, it's not for you to know. But the Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are in a gap. So what do we do in the gap? What is our response Consider that Jerusalem is God's city. The temple is his sanctuary. The people of Israel are called by his name, and that is his Messiah. And yet the Lord was pleased to crush all those things. Yes, all those things are important to God, but God was looking to the end, to the results of the eternal accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was willing to crucify his only beloved son because of what would come from that grievous road. The eternal weight of glory that would come from Calvary's cross would far outweigh any suffering and shame that the Son of God endured. And so what glory, friends, awaits us? How valuable must this salvation be that we now possess because of Christ? And if Christ endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him, how great a joy awaits us. Some of you may be saying, okay, 
There's a kingdom to come. I get it. But just give me something practical. Friends, there is nothing more practical than to fix your eyes on the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11, I'll close with this. In the famous hall of faith, we see what it was that caused these saints to run the race well. I'll start with verse 6. He says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So yes, God is pleased when you believe in him, certainly, but he's also pleased when you believe that he will reward you when you seek him. And you say, what's the reward? I'll show you. What was their reward? It says of Abraham that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking forward to the city. He was looking to the kingdom. It says of Moses, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. Moses was looking to the kingdom of Christ and he was willing to walk down a grievous road because of the eternal blessings that would be waiting for him. All of these, all these faithful saints died in faith without receiving the promises in this life. But having seen them and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. That's the kingdom. They aspire to a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. They were all looking to the kingdom. This country, this world is not our home. We belong to a better country, a better kingdom, an actual physical kingdom with real bodies and real nations and boundaries. It's not just baby angels playing harps in the sky. And when you look beyond the here and now, when you, when you look to the crowns of faithful living, when you look to the kingdom of Christ, you will run well. You will fix your eyes on Christ and in so doing, cast aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. God was willing to have darkness come before light. Jesus was willing to have the cross before the crown. And when we look to that glorious day, we will be willing to consider the reproach of Christ greater riches than anything this world has to offer. Look to the prize, dear saints. Look to the kingdom. If that's where your treasure is, your heart will be there as well. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison as we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That's the kingdom still to come. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When you look to the kingdom, you will live for the king. And you will live like a citizen of that kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Let's pray. Father, what...
a glorious eternity awaits us because of Christ. It's because of him that we are cleansed. It's because of him that we can have this hope. And it's because of his spirit and his power that we can stand strong and run this race well. Lord, your word is sure. You are coming and your kingdom is coming and all the nations will worship you. Thank you that you have qualified us to be citizens of your kingdom forever and that we will stand with you in glory for a thousand years and then forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of the saints who have gone before us. May we follow in the steps of those like Daniel who have lived faithfully in keeping their eyes on the kingdom of your beloved son. Give us grace to do the same until we stand with Christ in glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.